Do you remember the first time your parents trusted you to be a home alone? You remember that? Maybe in some of you, your parents never trusted you to be home alone. I don't know. Did you make wise decisions when your parents were gone? Or did they come back to problems? Was the house a mess? Were you watching something you shouldn't? God forbid, were you throwing a party when your parents were gone? Maybe I'm bringing up bad memories for you. That it brings back that moment that you heard the car coming down the driveway and you rushed around to go back to bed because you were supposed to be in bed to clean up the house or do whatever so they didn't see what you were doing while you were gone, while they were gone. Well, today, we are going to see a father-like figure check up on his kids. Paul checking up on Corinth. What have they been doing while he's been gone? What is he going to see when he comes back? And what is their attitude to him coming to visit? Well, I am so glad that uh, we are past the feelings of parents coming up the driveway. But what if I told you a parent figure is coming to check on what you've been doing. Are you rushing to put the liquor back into the cabinet? Are you erasing your browser history? Is your girlfriend or boyfriend jumping out the second floor window? Or are you just annoyed by the idea of any authority coming to check up on you at all? Let's look at God's word today, and I'm going to make this argument. I think the scripture makes this argument today. If you're going to hear anything I say, this is the main idea. The gospel message is coming. It's not what others say it is. Instead, it truly has personal care and love for us. And it desires the church's health. The gospel message is coming. It's not what others say it is. It actually has personal care and love for us in mind. And it desires the church's health. Well, let's look together. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to camp out at verses 11 through 21. All chapter 13 is also printed for you. I'll go to it later in the sermon. But I'm just going to read 11 through 21. So let's pay attention together as we look at God's word, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 21. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here, for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not burden, for I seek not what is yours but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. 
I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself do not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that you have been speaking in, that we have been uh, speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual morality, and sensuality that they have practiced. The word of the Lord. If you're just joining us, welcome. You've now come to the end of 2 Corinthians. Sorry you missed it all. We've been in this book for 19 weeks. And this is the last sermon we will give in 2 Corinthians before we start the Ten Commandments for this summer. I hope you've come away from this book with this idea that there are major relational dynamics in church that are very complex and they are messy. You see, many people think, oh, I wish we could get back to the first century church. No, I don't. <laughs> Hopefully you read this go, I'm glad we're not like the church in Corinth. It wasn't simply easier in the first century. This book really shows us that there is messiness in church. There is complexity. There is conflict. There is having to deal with issues that people have. It was even faced in the early church. Something that we still face in the church today. We see in Paul's history, remember, this is one that planted this church in southern Greece. And he is born with this church. He has been bearing with them through all of these issues they've gone through, this church that he started. Issues like sexual sin, incest, union with prostitutes, idolatry, schisms in worship, failure to give financially what they had promised. It's like an unruly teenager that Paul, the parent, is having to be patient with. He sent them multiple letters. One, a very severe one that we don't have. He's had to visit them painfully, what's been called classically the painful visit. And now we see here at the end of 2 Corinthians that he is coming again. He's coming to visit them for a third time. You see, the church in Corinth has been influenced by many people around them. Simple, see, by Roman culture, we see that in the loose morality and the things that they have been practicing because they've been around the Roman world. They face that. 
But on the other side, they've also faced legalism in the super apostles, as Paul calls this group sarcastically. This group that is influencing the church in Corinth in a negative way with a false gospel. These super apostles, they boast about their ability in being great speech writers and rhetoricians. They boast about their resumes with backgrounds of being Hebrews or sons of Abraham. They boast about signs and wonders that they have seen. And along with doing that, they call Paul and his companions foolish and weak because they do not take money for their speaking gigs, because they face persecution and suffering. And so this group bashes them. And in this third visit, Paul is wondering, with all these influences around this church that he has planted, what is he going to find when he comes back for the third time? And you see, at the end of the letter, he uses very direct speech, reluctantly, but he uses this because this is the methods of the super apostles, bragging about their resumes. So Paul says, okay, my resume is similar to yours. Talking about great signs and wonders, okay, you want to talk about that? I'll talk about being in paradise. But he says, I say these things, as you see in the first few verses, I do this with patience and endurance. We saw last week that Paul boasts in his weaknesses. He wonders all these horrible things said about him and his compatriots. Is this church going to be okay? So again, verses 11 through 13 in the beginning, he reiterates these themes. I didn't come to burden you like the super apostles did, asking for money or for you to perform some rituals. I don't favor you less than the other churches. I have been patient with you. And he also says this almost in a sarcastic tone to get their attention. You see in verse 13, For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Again, he's saying, I didn't burden you like these super apostles did. And sarcastically, he's saying, Forgive me this wrong for not burdening you like they did. You see, these super apostles, they're kind of instigators, influencers. You know, like the friends that might tell you something when you are home alone. Wait, your parents are leaving for the weekend? Do you think we could come over? What? Your parents put a lock on the liquor cabinet? Can we try to get it open? They, let you, they don't let you stay up past 11 o'clock? They lock channels on your TV? They limit your phone use? Come on, 
Why follow them? They're limiting you. You should just be you. That is the influence the super apostles are having upon Corinth. It's no coincidence that Paul, in analogy in this, brings up himself as a parent for this church and has that kind of parent Son, daughter kind of relationship. That's what he's trying to do it and couch it in that kind of language. He's trying to communicate. You doubt my track record? You doubt that I really care for you? These super apostles are way more burdensome. I care for you as a parent cares. I am for your best interests. Don't listen to these other influences. I'm sure I might hear it from some of the teenagers here today about what I just said, right? right? Don't give my parents more ammunition, right? Don't talk to my parents about phone usage or what I watch on TV. It's a good thing that your parents or any adults here don't fall into the false messages that authority is not good for us, right? We don't have those problems, adults, do we? We don't kind of like shake a little bit when authority comes to us and tells us maybe we should be living a different way. We don't balk when the church tells us this is how we're supposed to live. We don't things like say things like, the church doesn't really care for me. It's just a bunch of rules. They just take away fun. When we hear accountability messages, we might just cast it aside as adults. We might say, I'm not a teenager anymore. There's no authority over me anymore. You know, Paul, throughout this last part of the letter, he keeps on asking questions to get the attention of the church. Maybe I should ask you a question this morning. What would it take to convince you that the gospel message is for your good? What would it take to convince you that the gospel message is for your good? See, that's what Paul is trying to do throughout this letter to 2 Corinthians. The major theme throughout this book that I hope you have seen is the authenticity of the gospel message that is authentic that it is true, that it is reliable, that it can be trusted, that it is good. Through all the other influences by the Roman world, by the super apostles, by all that the church in Corinth is facing, that this message would cut through it all. And you might say, it's something that's reliable that I can listen to. Verse 
Verse 14, here for the third time, I am ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? You see, there was this major mistrust that had been bubbling in the church in Corinth. A rumor had been spread. See, Paul doesn't take money from the church in Corinth when he comes to speak, like the super apostles and other people do. But Paul has asked Titus and his other compatriots for money for the church to give to the church in Jerusalem that is going through poverty and famine. And some rumor has been spread in the church in Corinth that Paul is scheming, taking money off the top from this offering that is going to Jerusalem. Earlier, we saw that Paul went through serious accountability with the church in checks and balances of how the money was to be collected. And here again, he comes back to this idea. In an analogy, he says, you know, parents... Save for their children. Parents, kids do not save for their parents. In the same way, I'm not taking money from you, the church. Instead, I am saving for you. And what he's showing is savings, I'm giving my life to you. I'm sacrificing for you. I'm doing these things for you. This isn't some power play. I'm not doing this for financial gain. I actually care for you. I will expend my life for you. He's trying to squash these rumors. To convince them that I am for you. Not what I can take from you. I seek you, that you would follow the gospel, that you would trust in Christ. Again, he's trying to cut through all these messages that are so hard, that are being heard by this church from so many different people. How many of you have turned off the news? I've heard this quite a bit lately, that people are just done. Just done with the news. I'm turning it off. I'm a pastor, so I have to be in culture, right? So I've got to listen to the news. So I was listening to the news. It is amazing. It was NPR, okay? Sorry, don't judge me for listening to NPR. Usually NPR, very just kind of low tones, not too passionate, you know? This one guy was getting really heated and emotional about what has gone on. The Roe versus Wade, the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention news, the shooting in Texas. And one commentator, I'm not going to mention him, he's a Christian on NPR. It's amazing. After his 
compatriot was talking, getting heated, he took a pause. And he said this. It seems to me in America, people are proud of their bitterness. Proud of being bitter about what people do. About the other aisle. About institutions. About what we're not doing right. As Americans, we're just proud of our bitterness. What has cynicism done to us? Fine. This is the world and how it's going to be. I'm going to do my own thing. All I'm going to listen to is myself. The church isn't going to do it. Look what they do. Look at their scandals. You see what they do? People wonder what is authentic? What is true? In one sense, I'll say this for us as the church. This is a hard situation to be in. People are not just going to take our word for it. It's not business as usual in the church that we can come up here and expound and people will just believe. You might find this hard to believe, but I didn't take this job for its prestige. Okay? I don't think Dan Jackson did either. (laughs) It's not the prestigious job it probably used to be 50 years ago in America. I don't just walk into places and say, I'm a pastor, listen to me. No, actually, it goes down when I say I'm a pastor if they're going to listen to me. But in one sense, it's good. There's no more faking. There's no more platitudes. We actually have to show as a church genuine care for people. Sacrifice. Pursuit. Genuineness. That's what Paul is doing. He is giving his life to the church. He is caring for these people in this way to show, let me show you that I do care for you. It's not for my own gain. It is for you. What happens when this message comes to you? Do you dismiss it? Oh, it's not going to control me. You're not going to give me a message. Do we continue this distrust in institutions that has influenced us as a culture? I'll reiterate this question to you. What would it take for you to believe? What would it take for you to believe that someone's accountability in your life is actually for your best interests? Goes on. Did I take advantage of you? Through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? 
Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. See, Paul again is giving them questions to engage them. To give them, are they going to say yes or no answers to this? Do you think all this defense of our ministry that we've done throughout this whole letter, do you think it was to build ourselves up? And some of them might be thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, it is. It's so you can get a credibility. But Paul's like, no, it's not. We did not say all this to make ourselves look good. In fact, no, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. We have been defending our ministry to show Christ and his message. In fact, we do not boast in our strength. We boast in our weaknesses. And you see that Paul shows time and time again the sacrifices that they have made, that it might be echoes of the cross and of Christ. I love that he says, beloved. Such beautiful language. A parent loving a child. What would it take for you to believe that someone is actually for you? And for your best interests. What would it take? Some of you might not know this, but I used to be in politics. And some of you have played games with me. Dan Jackson's played volleyball with me, and he knows how competitive I get. Now, think of the competitiveness that I have in games. That was my life in everything. That's how I was. A friend of mine called me, an older gentleman in Boulder, Colorado, and he said, I think you should come to Boulder and do ministry after I lost a campaign. I said, no, man. I don't want to do ministry. And he said, I think you should. For two years, I followed this older gentleman, Jack McDonald, in Boulder, Colorado. He shared his life with me. He gave me a job. He fed me. He showed me his family. He made major sacrifices for me. And in certain moments when I got upset about ministry and played the political games and all those things, he, in his gentle way, would say, do you think this way of power is the way to change people's hearts? Cutting. Cutting. But you see, his care for me, his love for me, for me. That was the power by the Spirit of God to change me. But not in games yet. I'm getting there.
Let me read verse 3 and 4 in chapter 13. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. You see, Paul and his compatriots are living in the shadow of Christ. Christ's sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, his weakness of bearing with us in condescending from heaven to earth to be among us. That in that there would be power to change our hearts that we would be transformed into his image. I say the gospel message is coming. You're right. It has come. It is here. And it is coming again. But let me just camp in one. The message is coming to you right now. Right now, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is interceding for you right now. He wants to work on your heart right now. This is one that has given his life for you, that has sacrificed for you, that cares for you, that knows you, that made you. Could he have your best interest in mind? Could he? I'm trying to cut through. I'm trying to cut through. That right now, you that might have a drinking problem, he is right now ascending and then working upon your heart right now. That you in sexual sin, that you don't want to hear anyone keeping you accountable, but he is interceding for you right now. For you that don't want to give your money away, that you are so worried about your money, he's interceding for you right now. For you that don't want to love your spouse because it's so difficult and so hard that you just want to be done with it, he is interceding for you right now. Do you want to hear that? Or did you want to put the walls up right now? Don't tell me that. Don't tell me that the parents coming down the driveway. I don't want to be caught. I don't want to be seen. He sees and he loves you. And he's interceding for you in it. Verse 10 in chapter 13 for this reason, I write these things. It might be because he's writing all these things. in While I am away from you, that when I come, I might not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me. For the building up and not for the tearing down. Do you believe that what is being said to you is not for your tearing down? It's for your building up. Imagine, just like I have called out things, this letter would be read to the congregation, right? It's read to them, knowing that 
Paul is coming. And this is what he says. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I might, may find you not as I wish. And that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I might have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual morality, and sensuality that they have practiced. He's coming. What is he going to find? I love the words fear and being humbled. I wouldn't say he's worried, but he's burdened. He's burdened for his church that when he comes back, he might see health. It might be good. That the message of the gospel truly has taken hold in their lives. That they have not wandered from it and said that they are living in the truth. And then he has this comparison contrast from chapter 12 to verse 11 and 12 in chapter 13. He's saying, I don't want to see this, but I hope I see this. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with, with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. That is the picture he wants to see in coming back. Aaron and I, we do go on dates. It's, we do do that without the kids. And we leave them home alone. And sometimes on the date, we discuss what will we come home to. Sometimes we're fearful of the carnage in the house. Sometimes we are fearful, or sometimes we're humbled that our parenting skills have not played off well when we get back. And sometimes all the fears and the humility that we're going to face do come true when we come back home. And we see the carnage that's in the house. But we do hope that what we've modeled would take hold in our girls' hearts. Not for our sakes, for simply a clean house, for simply not have to deal with stress when we get home from a date, but for their sakes. How they model love to each other and patience and kindness and gentleness. Dear church, God has come. He intercedes for us now. And he will come again. Has his care and love for us, his death and resurrection taken hold in us? Does it embody us as the church? So that when he sees us, that when he comes again, 
we would be a people that have been transformed by the love and care and the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us a picture of not just a perfect church, but a church that has issues and problems. And God, thank you for being a loving parent that desires to build us up, not tear us down. That sees all of us and intercedes in the weakest parts of us so that you may become strong that we would know that your grace is sufficient. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.